Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. This is The Political Scene, and I'm David Remnick. Just a month ago, we were riveted by a story about two lawmakers expelled from the state legislature in Tennessee. Their offense wasn't corruption or criminal activity. They had dared to join a protest at the State House in favor of gun control just after the Nashville shooting at a Christian school. And for that, the men who just began their terms in the legislature this year were thrown out. I don't personally want attention. What I want is attention on the issue of gun violence. But instead, we're here with the resolution you put up talking about expelling me for advocating for ending gun violence in the state of Tennessee. But those young men are not the only Democrats being targeted by their Republican colleagues. Just weeks later, Representative Zoe Zephyr of Montana was barred from the House chamber for the remainder of the session after making a speech against a trans health care ban. In Arizona, Wisconsin, and North Carolina, state legislatures have tried to strip powers from state officials who happen to be Democrats in order to put those powers in Republican hands. Now, debates can get ugly in state legislatures for sure, but these are not exactly debates. They're steps to prevent debate, and they're deeply anti-democratic. So how is this happening and why? I talked last week with the political scientist Jacob Grumbach, who's the author of a book called Laboratories Against Democracy. Jake, in Tennessee last month, we saw two lawmakers thrown out of their seats for joining a protest which became a big national story. And in Montana this week, a state representative named Zoe Zephyr is suing in an attempt to regain access to the House floor after she gave a speech against restrictions on gender-affirming care. Why are Republicans escalating these seemingly minor confrontations in state legislatures to be national news stories? How does that possibly benefit them? Right, and one interesting puzzle is these happened in uh, states that have super majorities of Republicans in the legislature. So it's not like eliminating one seat here or there is going to shift a vote on state legislation in these cases. So that's extra interesting. But really what we're seeing is the uh, long culmination of the increasing nationalization of American politics, where state legislatures are at the front line of battling over the national tug of war over issues uh, in the culture war, especially like transgender rights and uh, issues of racial conflict. Well, how did this happen and why? It must be a deliberate choice on somebody's um behalf? Right. Well, it took uh, sort of major investments by both political parties nationally, uh, campaign donors nationally, and organized interest groups and activist groups over the long term with respect to issues like abortion and reproductive rights or issues of gun rights and gun control. Now we really have two national teams, the Republicans and the Democrats, battling over this tug of war nationally through the institutions of state government. Is there anybody 
that's responsible for this strategy? How, how would you personalize this in, in Washington right. on behalf of the, either the Republican National Committee or the greater Republican Party? So we can point to, you know, the Koch brothers. Um, the Koch brothers have funded uh, groups like Americans for Prosperity, as well as been, uh, uh, you know, had an arm's length distance, but been sort of involved in the American Legislative Exchange Council. And ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, is an incredibly important organization that really organized three constituencies. That's major business and extractive industry, gun rights, libertarians, and the religious right. And what they did is they uh, really provided what we social scientists call legislative subsidies for state legislatures. Okay, what, what, is that, that what, what does is, that mean? Exactly. So state legislatures, I don't mean this as an insult, are less professionalized and more amateurish than Congress. They don't have big staff to write bills. They don't have staff lawyers all the time. In some state legislatures, you know, people go into the legislature for a, maybe a couple months a year and the That's rest right. of the time they're on the, you know, on their corporate board and the American Plastics Council and doing their, you know, earning money. They earn low salaries in the legislature. So what that means is they need help from groups and uh, experts and activists on what to bring on to the political agenda in their states and what bills to write and pass, because mm. that takes serious professional work. And groups like ALEC provided model bills around issues like stand your ground laws that then spread across states, especially Republican controlled states. But it's not just on the right. You know, you think about uh, climate activist groups and things have really helped the coastal states uh, like California pass fuel efficiency standards and other climate regulations and uh, integrate Democratic state governments into the national sort of Democratic Party position on climate and the environment. Now, Jake, I spoke recently with a lawmaker in Nebraska who's been fighting a ban, fighting a ban on transgender care in that state. She told me that our constituents don't really care that much about trans issues, and the culture war is kind of out of step with what they do care about, agriculture, property taxes, and so on. That really surprised me. Does it surprise you? Uh, it doesn't surprise me. This is part of a larger pattern. And uh, really, a couple generations ago, for better or worse, you know, it's not always great, but states were much more focused on state-based issues and their regional issues. So this could be a bad thing, like in the era of Jim Crow, where this was really about Southern segregationist states protecting uh, the right at the state level to segregate. This was about local public goods and segregated institutions. Whereas now we have what is a national conflict between the parties. Mm -hmm. So an issue like, uh, you know, policies to go after transgender healthcare or rights or things like that, they're not responding to a, a local influx of transgender rights and trans people, right? This is not uh, responding to a local concern, no, they're, but They're rather, responding to a hot-button culture war thing exactly. that's going to help them possibly in a national election. Exactly. So if you are a politician and you're trying to rise in the ranks from the local or state level in your party, you have to think about right. where the donors are, where the organizations in your party network are, and where the national party is. So your best bet is to join the national culture war. So Ron DeSantis is a great example of this in Florida, of really being entrepreneurial, saying, I want to rise in the ranks in the National Republican Party, tap national Republican donors who care about these national issues. And same thing with, you know, 
Gavin Newsom or, you know, other Democratic governors have responded in kind to tap the Democratic donor base and rise in the ranks and potentially run for president. And this is a, a massive change from a couple of generations ago. And we also have to really emphasize that, unfortunately, voters are really responding to the national tug of war. And we've seen statistically in political science the diminishment um, and decline of economic voting and voting on the basis of how your area is doing economically or socially and much more about uh, your sort of national partisanship. There was a time not so long ago when state-level politics would have been thought of, certainly to, you know, reporters who were aching to go to Washington, is kind of boring. They're concerned with budgets and roads, and that seems to have changed. What's been the effect on the actual day-to-day life of the states? Is if, if you're spending all your time screaming and yelling at each other about issues that, you know, bear on very few people and are there to impress Fox News or, or, or whomever it's there to impress— What's getting lost? So there's a sort of feedback cycle in the nationalization of political media here where the Internet and the rise of Craigslist really destroyed classified revenue, classified ad revenue for local newspapers that were on the state legislative beat. So there's been a huge decline in state politics journalism. So that makes it harder for voters to hold state level politicians accountable. And what that means is now voting is really detached from the performance of state legislators and governors on issues like expanding the economy and jobs and, you know, how COVID is doing in an area. And this makes it really hard to do, uh, have a healthy political system where you bargain over policy when it's sort of national tug of war on these culture war issues where there's really uh, no room to negotiate. Jake, another tactic we've seen lately is Republican legislatures passing laws to strip power from Democratic officials. In Arizona a couple of years ago, lawmakers stripped Democratic Secretary of State Katie Hobbs' legal authority in election-related lawsuits, and that gave that power to a Republican attorney general. There have been moves quite similar to it in other states like North Carolina, Wisconsin, Michigan, I think. Is this business as usual or should we be very alarmed? That's the key question, David. So I would say the most serious consequence of this nationalization of state politics has been threats to American democracy. The U.S. Constitution puts a massive amount of authority over democracy, over uh, issues like voting rights, legislative districting, and these sort of uh, legislative powers that you mentioned in the hands of states, not the national government. And that's pretty unique, mm-hmm. the U.S. putting all this authority over democratic institutions like election certification at the state level and then to some extent counties. And then the emerging threat of electoral subversion in presidential elections that we almost saw in 2020 and we could see in 2024. And those have been pretty asymmetric. So it is true that Republican-controlled states have passed more, much more extreme gerrymanders and restrictions on voting. Then there's this additional dimension of it, which is illiberal moves and norm erosion in politics. And that's where you see stripping out partisan governors in Wisconsin and Michigan of power, of transferring power over election administration, and expelling legislators for uh for example, speaking out of turn and things that right. uh, in, I, historically have not generated expulsions. Jake, you mentioned earlier the Koch brothers, but, you know, this is not the first moment in history when money has played 
a great role in American politics, either on the state level or the national level. This is not the first time in American history when the politics of the country are deeply fractured and inflamed. So what's new? What about the demographic trends of the country or the rural-urban divide of the country have also helped lead us to this place? So it is true that in the past, threats to democracy and the weakening of democracy in the states was much more extreme. Like, we we just have to be clear about that. The difference between a Jim Crow and a non-Jim Crow state is so much more vast than the difference between Wisconsin and, you know, Connecticut or something like that. But I think one big difference now is that politics is so nationalized and the Republican Party has kind of uniquely created a coalition of a very elite economic base that prefers high-end tax cuts and deregulation. And then you have the electoral base that's really motivated by anti-immigration politics and uh, other elements of the culture war. That's pretty unique around the world. Now, I can almost hear a Republican voice somewhere saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Look, look at politics on the national level. Nancy Pelosi didn't let the Republican Party have its own chosen members of the January 6th committee. In the U.S. Congress, when the House was controlled by the Democrats, Marjorie Taylor Greene was stripped of her committee assignments for views that her opponents found offensive. So what's the difference? Do you think that was a mistake on the Democrats' part in Congress? Or um, is this an equal battle? How, how do you assess the differences between the Democrats and the Republicans here? It's true that the Democratic Party has, for example, used the filibuster against George W. Bush and uh, the Republican Congress. And then again, under Trump, uh, it's true that at the state level, there's been issues with democracy and democratic states of having elections at the state level be an off cycle, off years in order to keep uh, turnout low. There's all sorts of issues that are challenging for democracy and norms on the Democratic side. But when you just look at them in the aggregate, they don't stack up. So gerrymandering is an easy one where you can quantify the extent of gerrymandering with statistics. And there it's just true that Democratic gerrymanders like in Nevada have not been as extreme as Republican gerrymanders. And then the New York Court of Appeals threw out a Democratic gerrymander. That's Democratic judges threw out a Democratic gerrymander to give Republicans greater advantage in the New York state map. And then in thinking about restricting access to committee assignments and things like that, those are also more minor than the full partisan expulsion of a legislator from a state legislature. If you look at the issues that the Republican Party is pursuing hardest when it comes to culture wars and other things, you look at abortion restrictions, gun rights. These are broadly unpopular. And they're largely state issues. So even if gerrymandering insulates them to some degree... Isn't there a danger for the Republican Party of overreach and seeing these issues come back to hit them in the back of the head? That's right. Going too far absolutely uh, has been backfiring. And in 2022, we saw somewhat surprisingly that uh, heavy sort of fear-based tough-on-crime appeals plus transgender panic around bathrooms plus the abortion issue have actually not... Uh, uh, been as successful as one might have thought for the Republican Party. So what's the fix here? Are there yeah. states that are doing things better? So, yes. Yeah, so the average state in terms of its democratic health 
small d democracy has actually been okay. That's because some states like where I am now, Washington State, Colorado, and others have really expanded access to voting and uh, have independent redistricting commissions that have really drawn fair districts for both parties. So every voter has an equal say in setting a state legislative or U.S. congressional majority. And then I really think we, we as social scientists, economists, political scientists, sociologists have understated the role of labor unions and organized labor mm -hmm. in keeping Americans, especially working class white Americans, also Latino men, away from the culture war and towards a politics of what are the policies that are going to help my family materially? And that's a much healthier politics. Jacob Grumbach, thank you so much. Thanks, David. Jacob Grumbach teaches political science at the University of Washington, and his recent book about state politics is called Laboratories Against Democracy. 